Hello and welcome to Into the Wild, the podcast that brings you wildlife facts, conservation updates and nature stories from the professionals to you. This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. If you're like me, money can be tight. I'm not rolling in it and yes, that's probably why I've got long hair. Save money wherever you can, right? So when it comes to binoculars, money is one of the restrictions. I don't always have the total amount up front and I could probably just pay it in dribs and drabs. Well, that's where Leica helped me. Leica have created a new way to shop. Introducing a 0% APR and a 9.9% APR on a large selection of items. Available online, this new program guarantees peace of mind when purchasing your bit of Leica kit. You even get to pick the right financing plan for you. You can read more about this program on the Leica Online Store UK. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Into the Wild. I'm your host Ryan Dalton. How have you all been as I record this and sit here now? It is National Gardening Week, so what have you lot been doing in your garden? I hope you've been out there admiring it, enjoying it and being in your lovely green space. Um, I've got all my wildflower ceilings that are now about three or four inches high. Buzzing to see them in summer and see what flowers start popping up. We've got an exciting thing coming up right now. I've decided to make a new bit to these intros called 60 Second Nature News. So what this is going to be is each week I'm going to pick a few stories um, that have happened in the last week um, from England, Europe, around the world, wherever. And we're going to push them from my voice into your ears. So the first instalment of 60 Second Nature News is coming up now. Are you ready for this? Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, 60 second nature news. Here we go. Strap yourselves in. First time we're doing this. Let's go. The Tenby walrus is still going strong, enjoying its time around the southwest coast of Wales. A few people have been getting a bit too close and have been warned to keep distance. If you're unsure the main reason why you should keep distance from Wally the walrus, here's the main reason. It's a f***ing walrus. I don't care how many medals you've won for swimming, Stephen. You're not going to outswim a walrus. The National Trust embarrassed themselves this week, in my opinion, after using plastic blossom trees from a company they deemed as sustainable as possible. Surely not as sustainable as, I don't know, an actual tree? These trees were for a project on Bond Street, which were helping the National Trust raise money to plant real trees. My PSA on this? Don't use plastic plants and trees. They're pointless. Get real ones. They're way better. The Marine Stewardship Council funds ocean projects to drive progress in sustainable fishing. Grants totaling £650,000, including support for fishery observer safety and bycatch improvements, have been awarded. 20 fisheries and research projects around the world will receive up to £60,000 each from the MSC's Ocean Stewardship Fund, a fund dedicated to enabling and supporting sustainable fishing around the world. And finally, Florida unanimously passed funding $300 million to expand their wildlife corridors. That's the end of 60 Second Nature News. Huge thanks to American animal podcast Just a Zoo of Us and Twitter follower Emma Ackley for passing on some positive nature news. That was difficult, but there's the first bit of 60 Second Nature. I don't even know if it was 60 seconds, to be honest. We might have been a little bit under, might have been a little bit over. (laughs) but it doesn't matter you get the point it's very quick nature news if you ever have any great conservation stories successes or anything like that do please send them to me on instagram twitter or on gmail you know where we're at it's all in the write-up of this show moving on to today's episode what's it about every time we think about youth in 
fighting biodiversity loss and climate change and all the things under that umbrella of eco-goodness, we think about people, we think of the Gretas of the world, we think about people going on marches and protests and signing petitions, all that massively important stuff. However, the youth in this movement sometimes do things a bit differently or a bit, a bit of a different branch off. And the two guests on today's show are exactly that. This week, I spoke with Tom and Harvey from the Celtic Reptile and Amphibian Organisation, a little organisation that was set up, I think, about... Well, it's been a long time in the making, but they've kind of gone into media um, in the last uh, probably about 12 months. Tom and Harvey are breeding, captive breeding, European reptiles and amphibians to reintroduce them or improve current numbers um, in and around the UK. It's an absolutely fantastic and inspirational project and when I spoke to Tom and Harvey I was blown away by their enthusiasm, their maturity on the topic as well but not only that, the how inspiring they both are just to talk to you like this is the way forward this is what we need it was like talking to two people that have been in the industry for 40 odd years it was an absolute lovely chat and i'm excited to let you look guys listen to what they told me they've also one thing i did want to ask them is there was a little bit of criticism from the conservation world when this project kind of first hit the media um i think there was an article in the guardian and a few people shared their two pence which they're very welcome to do and so i asked them and harvey what they thought of that and kind of you know where have they taken those comments from so I really enjoyed their answer and I'm looking forward uh, to <laughs> for you guys hearing it as well. But anyway, enough of my mouth. Here is the chat that I had with Tom and Harvey from Celtic Reptile and Amphibian and I'll talk to you at the end of the show. Hello, Harvey and Tom. Welcome to Into the Wild. It's f- nice to meet you. I feel like I'm meeting two rewilding celebrities in the last six months. <laughs> uh, it's a pleasure to have you both on the show. How's your day been? You all good? Yeah, it's been, yeah, good. It's been a productive day. Building more enclosures. Yeah. Feeding sort- lizards. Yeah, sorting out the, the office. <laughs> yeah. It's been a bit of a hectic day. But- it's a normal day for us. Other people are just like, kind of like, what? And we're just like, yeah, you know, feeding lizards. <laughs> So, okay, feeding lizards are building enclosures. I've got to say, the feeding lizards part, yeah, I can get being into that. Building enclosures is not always what people want to be doing. Do you, the graft of it, you don't mind? Uh, well, it's 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 a bit of a, a two or three step process, really. The first bit is always the fun bit because you get to plan um, and you get to sort of uh, create uh, and, and customise your sort of enclosure and see what what what, what you want going where. The next bit is the worst bit, which is actually building it and putting the man hours into it. And then the last bit, which is creating it, making it look all nice and getting the animals in there, that's that's a good bit as well. So it's a big part of what we're doing, obviously, building enclosures. It's, it's, it is part of it. And yeah, we, we, we enjoy doing it. Nice one. So let's, for the listeners that might not know what the hell is going on, let's get them up to speed. We'll start with you, Harvey. Do you want to start by telling us who you are and what is it you do? Uh, so I'm Harvey Tweets. Um, I'm 18, so I'm pretty young, especially in conservation. I'm, I'm like a baby, practically. Basically, what I do is I'm a co-founder and co-director of Celtic Reptile and Amphibian. We're a limited company. We're an organisation which aims to breed and promote European reptiles and amphibians and lost British natives, so species mm. which have gone extinct in the last sort of, well, ever since, you know, the last ice age in Britain. And that relates to sort of rewilding and reintroduction. I guess my sort of birth into conservation has been, you know, like like everyone in conservation, really, it's been 
a love of nature from a very early age, collecting uh, bugs and, and growing tadpoles from frog spawn, whatever, um, <laughs> you know, all those really exciting things that you do as a child. But then sort of coming into sort of teenagers, sort of 12, 13, 14, realizing that the world isn't all as rosy and nice as what, you know, you're taught in childhood. And actually there yeah. are quite systemic problems, you know, in, in sort of kind of every, every aspect in life. Um, and I think the biggest one for me was the fact that, you know, the natural world is being practically sterilized left, right and center in yeah. every country on earth. You know, you can't really escape the just the extinction crisis, the climate crisis. And it's just born out of wanting to do something, you know, wanting to be part of the solution rather than rather than the problem. And um, and and yeah, it was a few years ago that I became really quite fascinated in reptiles and amphibians. I mean, I've always been fascinated in reptiles and amphibians. Mm. I remember as a boy seeing my first sand lizard in Dorset. I was about seven <laughs> and the lizard was out basking and it was it was an incredible experience. You know, it was a dragon to me. It was it was it mm. was amazing. But yeah, this sort of understanding that amphibians and reptiles, you know, there's not many in Britain. But if you go into the fossil record and into the historical record, there were lots more species than the, what the, there are today. And again, coming back to the idea of, you know, everything's not rosy. These species have gone extinct and, and many of, of them have gone extinct due to human means. And yeah, and I think that it's kind of in perfect timing with the fact that the rewilding movement's really gaining some speed. And, and it's, it's, it's actually becoming a revolution. It's the rewilding revolution. I think we need to start using that term because, you know, the amount of, of land that has been, you know, rewilded, the amount of people who are becoming involved, the amount of people who are even just rewilding their garden, whatever it may be. Yeah. It's just becoming phenomenal. And I think that the great thing about rewilding is it offers hope. It offers a sort of a, a new future in which, you know, we can all enjoy nature, you know, however great and small that that nature is. Really funny, Harvey, that you got into reptiles when you saw your first sand lizard, because that exact same thing happened to me <laughs> when I was, I think I would have been about 14 and I was in Weymouth in Dorset as well. Yeah. And we were just, I think we were just rock pooling. And I saw a lizard. And I don't think at that age I even knew that reptiles lived in the UK. I think at yeah. 14, especially when you're going back to, I don't want to sound too old, but 19, no, 2004, when I was um, 14, I didn't even think that was a thing. So when I saw them, I was like, oh my God, I love them even more now. Um, so that's funny that exactly the same animal for you and me got us into the same animal. Tom, what about yourself? How like, or did you tell us who you are and what is it you do? I'm Tom Whitehurst. I'm also a co-founder and co-director of Celtic Reptile Amphibian. My sort of pathway into this sort of arena is a bit different to Harvey's. You know, I, I haven't really been into reptiles or amphibians for that long. It's been probably three or four years. I'm actually quite similar to you in the fact that I didn't really know that there was lizards about till I was mm. probably similar age, 14, yeah. 15. So it's been a very recent thing, but obviously me and Harvey are good mates. We've been schoolmates for forever, really. And uh, I've seen him keep various species of reptiles. He started with exotics like pythons and tortoises yeah, and yeah. that. I always like sort of enjoyed seeing them animals uh, at his house and that. Mm. Um, so that I always had that sort of interest there, but it wasn't anything where I'd go out and get me own pet lizard or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, but but recently, last three years, four years, we had a sort of it was when we were doing GCSEs. Really, was when it kick started, and we were sitting in the garden in the sun after revising for a uh, English exam, 
and we were just like, oh, I, I can't be, I can't be doing, we can't be doing with this. this is, <laughs> it's awful. I can't. Like, we're not like the um, your standard pupil, you know. We don't, we don't yeah. like to go through school and just get churned out grades and it almost just rounds you I mean, off as a person in terms of just just we, cuts all the excitement and all I mean, the enjoyment we, out we're, not, we're not not to boast or anything but we're not bad at school i mean no. I, I was i'm a straight <laughs> a student mainly well we both yeah. are straight a students but i think that for both of you it was just the monotony of yeah. just being completely just hammered with going through it yeah useless information to be quite honest. <laughs> well and, and i mean for me it was the fact that you know I'm, I'm here sitting about learning about macbeth while the rainforest is burning down and it's <laughs> kind of a bit like you know a complete sort of paradigm really but yeah, yeah i mean like i say school hasn't been our thing but we are quite good at it so we get we get through it quite well so yeah we, we sort of had this idea why don't we start keeping these lizards and, and frogs and that in much larger numbers so i started to get a few species harvey started increasing his collection and we actually started up a facebook page which at the time it was just to put photos of lizards and that mm. up and then people started getting behind sort of the the idea that we had from the start, which was let's try and maybe get these animals back into the wild. Yeah, and of it, not going to be easy. We never knew. It's it was not gonna not going to be easy. And in fact, we <laughs> not easy now realised that it's even harder than it was when we first started. But <laughs> you know, nothing's going to be easy. If yeah. if if everything was so easy in life, everything everything would already be done and sorted and dusted and mm-hmm. put to one side. So you've got to go in into something like this, a big problem, which is, you know, European herps declining in the wild massively. You've got to go into a problem like this with ambition and really just you've got to be sensible about it. You can't expect to get all the animals restored in five years you know it's, it's a long process and yeah. i guess us being quite young i'm 17 so we've got a few years left to uh maybe try and do something about it nice one it's um i do i do like your psa there when you were like don't don't get me wrong we did well in school we didn't <laughs> absolutely didn't just walk away from our exams <laughs> um did. i wasn't breaking yeah, point a few yeah. times but yeah <laughs> I just, I'm like I said to you before we recorded. I am so envious, and I, it's healthy envy. It's not like unhealthy. <laughs> it's just because what you're doing. I, I think there's elements that we all, animal lovers of all ages, did this at some point on some level. You know, everyone either had a pond or used to go down to the pond to collect frog spawn or get newts and different, um, mainly amphibians. So we've all kind of experienced it, but I think the level and the passion and drive that you guys have shown that you have from that is is just the other level, and it's it's kind of shown us what's what the power is behind that. So I guess the other thing, I guess the next question for my listeners to really get up to grips is to tell us what Celtic Reptile and Amphibian Project is, what it's doing, and and kind of what it's doing now as well. So how it started. So Harvey, do you want to tell us a bit about how it started? And Tom, you can kind of tell us where it's at now. So yeah, I, I, as to say, it started a few years ago when we were doing our GCSEs. Um, and basically the fundamental aim, at least at the start, was to get species bred. Because mm-hmm. you want to save any species, if you can breed them in captivity, that acts as such as just a security net. And I know there are many sort of qualms with captivity, ethical issues, you know, etc. 
But yeah. if an animal is in captivity, you can ha- kind of have a sigh of relief. That does not mean we should not preserve it in the wild. Definitely, you know, on the contrary, we need to be preserving everything, you know, in the wild as much as possible. But there have been mm. so many examples of species where either we didn't have them in captivity and they went extinct. You know, I think yeah. an example which to all us all of our, you know, all of our nature lovers recently, the thylacine, you know, I think that's one of the saddest. <laughs> Saddest example. I mean, I did get my hopes up for that for a slight little bit. But, <laughs> so but if we had, if we, if the thylacines had been kept in captivity and there was a concerted effort, there's a chance that they could have been here today. I mean, the yeah. last thylacine I think was called Benjamin, and it actually died of neglect. It was left out in the cold overnight, and oh, in, in the zoo, and and it's such a, a sad, you know, commentary on on what zoos should not be. But, you know, it does beg the question, if we'd have kept some in captivity and someone yeah. had, had become a specialist who, whose job was to breed them, that species could have been saved. And so, yeah, I, I, captivity is is a, is a great one. And the thing about a lot of these species are, is that we can almost, uh, because they are, uh, some, most of the species are least concerned. So they're, they're mm. the lowest ranking conservation, you know, in, in the IUCN red list. Yeah. Um, and because of that, people will assume, oh, they mustn't be declining. There mustn't be, you know, any, ex- uh, you know, existential threats. Whereas quite the opposite, you know, these are some of the most fastly declining species. And, and on top of all of this, uh, because they've been sort of pushed to one side, no one knows how to breed them. So if they ever <laughs> did start to, you know, perish in the wild, then at mm. least we've got the security net, not only the fact that we've got animals in captivity, but also we've got the knowledge banked and ready to go. Because the reality is we've only got 30% or so of wilderness left. And if we want to yeah. bring wilderness back, we need to know how how it all works and how to re- restore it. And a fundamental of that is going to be captive animals being reintroduced. About what we're doing now, I think it's just about yeah, yeah about what we're doing now. I think yeah. that it's, when when we talk about this, it can be quite you know oh wow you know that's that's very mm. glorious. And then you know an actual date work is sh- shoveling dirt all over the place. Or something, <laughs> but I've got yeah. So it, at the moment, we are actually building the largest, the UK's largest breeding facility for European reptiles and amphibians. It's quite a mouthful. Wow. Yeah, we need to yeah. come up with a, an acronym for that. <laughs> basically, we're, we've got tons of outdoor enclosures and clo- enclosures inside greenhouses that we basically just turn into the wild, just putting mm. borders around them and turning them into the wild. We try and replicate where a lot of these species actually live in their natural habitats so, for instance, our sand lizard enclosure and natajat toad enclosure—they are a sand dune. So, if you took a snapshot, you wouldn't—you would probably think that you're on a beach somewhere in Formby. Oh wow! Okay, somewhere like that. So, we we try our best to try and replicate the uh, habitats where these animals come from, and obviously, this gives us opportunities to have photographers down and and, mm. and media media groups to do lots of shooting and filming of of the animals, which is really good because big portion of conservation is public awareness and you've got to yeah. you've got to get that education and get the, the public involved with a project like this otherwise you simply wouldn't be able to do anything the public are the driving force behind any project mm-hmm. i mean a lot of conservation projects i should add you know, are funded by the public yeah you know it's, yeah. it's public yeah, yeah. money and so you know we should we should definitely you know be involved and on board with with everything well, even know. though we are private we're not a charity or anything yeah, like yeah. that mm. we do love to get the public involved because our two minds 
that we can't do it all on our own. We need the input, we need the advice, and we need, you know, a lot of yeah, well, education. Education, well, yeah. 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 And especially kids. I mean, especially kids, and especially with kids, teenagers, because I think that I was actually speaking to Pete Cooper today. Yeah. Um, and he was talking like how basically we focus in conservation so much on, on young kids. So like, you know, ever since they can speak till eight years old and then so much on old people and, and well, sorry, I've sworn. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and I think that the, the biggest sort of proportion of people who aren't interested in nature is teenagers. And if we can really mm. nail that sort of target market and I call it target market because it is, it's a question of marketing. You know, this is a, it's yeah, a yeah. marketing program. If we can sort of narrow down on that, that band of young adults, then that will really help because it will get so many more people engaged. But anyway, well, because well, I, I, I know from obviously we are teenagers, so we know that there is no exposure out there for teenagers and this sort mm. of thing. You know, we just happen to stumble across it somehow off yeah. chance, but there's there's no there's no places out there where teenagers can get involved with, with and th- conservation. And I think I think you'd agree. I think that's where the rewilding aspect of things gives so much hope because Mm. you know it's hard to get a 17 year old a hormonal 17 year old who doesn't get out of bed (laughs) till 12 o'clock in the afternoon excited about a bee orchid or a lesser spot of evil and this is where rewilding the idea of bringing sexy carnivals back and and beavers back and you know pond turtles even one day hopefully really engages young uh, young adults because you yeah. know it, it's exactly what you see on the telly but it's actually in the countryside and that's what we've got to do we've got to get these sort of flagship species back and people may call that populist you may say, oh that's populist but the reality is you know environmentalism is a populist sort of movement you know it it relies on people you know every single person who breathes to be interested and have an active role in how they want the natural world you know whether they want the natural world to survive and so it's got to come from everyone and the concerted effort that we need and and needs to just be from all sex of society. I know we call it the, you know, the youth climate strike, but you had you had 80-year-olds there, you had young kids, you had pregnant women, you know, you had all sorts of different people marching and saying no to the people in power. And and I think that was really empowering seeing that. Um but yeah, sorry, a bit of a t- a bit of a tangent. Yeah, I'll get back to uh, what we're doing now. So so we actually have we have around 20 species, European herb species. Mm. Um we have about five or six that we actually focus mainly on for getting the numbers up, breeding them, and yeah. getting getting captive populations up. You know, they're all they're all animals that can live in the in the British climate. Some do, like I mentioned earlier, some do need greenhouses that added a little bit of heat and warmth in the winter. Mm. But it's again, like Harvey's mentioned, we do keep native species and, and extinct natives, and that's kind of where our passion really lies is yeah. on those extinct natives because. They are really just lost jewels in, in, in our sort mm. of wilderness that we want to try and get back. It's it's going to be a long process, but yeah, it's definitely our sort we've got, of we've main got a long focus. time to find. Yeah, we have. We have. It's it's just it's an, it's ma- it's amazing what you know what can be done, and I, I I completely agree with what you guys have just said. There is that. I mean, this is exactly why my this show exists of what you just said because. All the information out there, whether it's conservation or whether it's wildlife or just natural or environmental, is either for kids or it's for academics. There's nothing in that middle ground where it's like, how do we get even? I mean, let's let's raise the bar with the age. I'm 31. There's not much out here for 30 year olds, really, 
to really get them switched on. And I think those are the people we need in because those are the consumers and we need to get those <laughs> into like really focusing in it. So I totally agree. And I think you're right. It is a form of marketing. We do have to go, hey, listen, you need to listen to this because it's important. Yeah, yeah. And, but I think at the same time, one thing I will add is that I think we've got to become more, We our appeal has got to broaden because I think one of the problems conservation suffers from, although this may be a bit sort of controversial, what I'm going to say, is that it can be quite nerdy. It can be quite sort of, mm-hmm. you know, insular. And we actually need to broaden that outlook and get more people, you know, everyday people involved. I'm the biggest nerd there is in terms of reptiles and amphibians. <laughs> I read all sorts of academic papers. But uh, but even, you know, appreciating that looking at my friends and thinking, well, why aren't they interested in nature? And it's because to say, you know, here's a paper on the um, the dorsal pattern in a sand lizards. They're not exactly going to go, woohoo, let's, <laughs> uh, let's drink to that. So we've got it, you know, and, and that's again where rewilding what I was saying earlier slots yeah. in in terms of becoming broader and, 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 and gives so much hope to so many people. Yeah, I, I really agree. And I, th- I think when, because uh, I'm the same, you know, I've worked with animals for a long time. I'm in that, but I'm not super academic. That doesn't really fit with me, that kind of language. If someone wants me to read an article and they go, oh, read that thesis. I go, no, I, thesis is, can, no, I don't want a thesis. Give me a, give me a pop-up book. <laughs> That's Ryan's level, the practical, do you know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah, you big pictures, small words, guys, small words. Um, but that is that is like what I, I think there's so many people out there that's like, no, I don't want to. If it looks hard to read, people aren't going to read it. And I think it needs to be sellable to so many people. And I do agree, I think, with the rewilding because it's and you know, I'm not undermining the process because it's very complex, but it's still an easier process to understand than other yeah. forms that we've been working on before. You know, it's very complex, but, you know, the, the idea of rewilding and reintroduction is, you know, it's a more structure. I think there's some overlap too. Um, I was talking just earlier to uh, Jonathan Spencer, who's a great, great guy. And we were talking about, I think with conservation practices, so like coppicing or Mm. digging ponds or whatever, we often just do it without questioning, well, why do we do it? Why do we coppice trees? Why does that improve biodiversity? And this is where it fits into rewilding because coppicing trees mimics what beavers would do. Or yeah, what bison yeah. would do. I mean, if you there's a video on on YouTube where a bison in Romania just smacks a tree and just knocks <laughs> it straight over, and you know, and and it's that sort of disturbance which many species love. And yet, broadening our our understanding of of why we conserve things and why we mm. conserve them in that way is it, easy for people to understand because it's. I think there's a lot of assuming in conservation because it's it can be an echo chamber at sometimes. I think sometimes you need to actually step back and and, and realize that. Sometimes this goes over a lot of people's heads and we need to explain yeah. things, you know, on, a, on a, a level that can be understood. Uh, again, another quote from Pete Cooper. He said, like, the way that I try and explain things to people is like how I imagine a mechanic explaining how a car works to me. Yeah. So and that's I think, is a great way that you can talk to people about it. We're all, you know, we're all sort of culprits of, of not explaining things mm. properly enough to, to, yeah. to people. Uh, but yeah, I think there's a lot more improvement that's got to be done on that front. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's like when I write these quotes. I think I've said it on the show before. I hope I have. If not, my brother listens to this show and I hope he's not offended. But I, I, I base the questions I ask on what my brother would ask because he likes <laughs> nature. He, <laughs> that sounds horrible, doesn't it? <laughs> like, he likes nature, but he's not immersed in the 
you know, he, he, he works in retail. He learns from this show. So I base, if I'm going to talk to someone about corals, I'm thinking, right, what would Lee ask? And I will ask those questions. And that makes me sound like I'm putting myself on a pedestal. I don't know everything. I don't know the answers to all the questions. I'm not a generalist. Um, but yeah, so it's again, it's having that awareness that people need that kind of, you know, start from the basics and work your way in kind of thing. So my next question, Tom, I'm going to ask you this. Why? Now, I get you both like reptiles and amphibians, but why reptiles and amphibians? Why is this a focus that we should be kind of maintaining for rewilding in the UK? So I think reptiles and amphibians are one of those groups of animals that often get sort of lost amongst the mm. uh, the rest of them. Obviously, that they're quite small. You know, it's very easy to get behind a beaver or a bison, but people often just overlook the frogs and toads and the, the lizards that run about. So I think in, in terms of the public, I think that is why we should should look at reptiles and amphibians a bit more. But yeah. in terms of its their actual functionality, as we know, frogs eat a lot of insects. They eat a lot of insects, and insects carry disease mm-hmm. ticks and that it's been a, a big problem i remember i can't remember if it's last summer or the summer before lots of ticks and lyme, lyme disease yeah. going about and problems like that can be solved with more frogs and more diversity of amphibian and reptiles in in the, the land it's, it's simple things like that we we have snakes so we have escalating snakes they eat rats and that obviously so again that that can control rat-borne diseases you know and and all sorts of different things like that and rat populations so they all have their little niches and yeah you know different types of frogs will live in different areas and eat different insects and we always describe it as sort of like a a puzzle you've got to have every piece of that puzzle otherwise it just it's not going to work it's not complete and even if it is a small frog you've got to have it there otherwise one part of that ecosystem is not going to function. Yeah. One part doesn't work, another part doesn't work, and it's a chain reaction. And that is what we've seen in the wild. You know, we've neglected a few few little sections of, of the ecosystems, and now it's just all come falling down. And I think, like Harvey mentioned earlier, saying that people are always saying, like, why are we focusing on these least concerned species? Well, it's because why sit and wait until something becomes endangered or something becomes yeah. vulnerable? Yeah. You know, it doesn't yeah. make sense to wait until you've got a few hundred left in the wild and then you've you've really got a challenge on your hand to bring it back. Mm-hmm. So it's it's much easier to conserve something when you've got a lot of stock in the wild and also in captivity. So it's, we're trying to kind of be ahead of the curve which is a phrase that's going around quite quite often in COVID times. But uh, yeah, trying to beat the sort of the downfall that is inevitable if you just leave leave things to it. The thing is, it's such the British way, isn't it? To, to put out the fire rather than prevent it. Like it's such a, such a thing we like to do is like, let's get things really bad and then we'll sort it out. Um, <laughs> but so I, think, I think it's nice to hear that there's new ways of doing this. Um, so... Like you guys are busy. You said you're building enclosures, and you're obviously you've got some animals in them now, and you've got you know you're doing all these kind of media campaigns as well to kind of really push this kind of project on its feet. But what are the next steps for you, Harvey? I'll ask you this question: What what do you think direction do you guys need to be focusing in, especially as the change of season? Because did you start this in the autumn and winter? This project kick off, or has it been longer than that? It's been longer. I mean, it's been in sort of like we've been doing it under a Facebook page or whatever for about three years, but it then became formed into a limited company in September. And then it's been construction started in November. So it's uh, it's been quite a while. 
in terms of looking at season changes, I think this year what we want to do is really go big with media and we've got some really exciting projects planned that I can't can't really say, but we really want to be pushing sort of, you know, the reptiles and amphibians in, in rewilding. We also want to be doing more sort of academic work than ever in terms of really nailing this, the species husbandry down to a point that's that's great. I can't wait to put a, bio, a biosecurity protocol into effect. So we've nice. got this great biosecurity protocol, which has been formulated by the leaders in biosecurity practically. And that's going to ensure that we're going to pretty much like in one of the best sort of private facilities for ensuring that we don't become part of the problem which is the horrendous global chytrid crisis of amphibians so that's pretty exciting that's a bit of a nerdy side of me which is uh, looking forward (laughs) to that but it's going to be good and and yeah and 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 really just networking to get to a point where we can make sort of reintroductions and restoration happen nice one and I, I'm going to ask this question. I was tentative about asking this question, but I actually think it's a direction we should be going in to have the chat. You've got a lot on your plate. And as, as you said, you've got that, the biosecurity. So, because that kind of, that actually leads me on to my next question, I guess, and talking about media. When this project launched and it came out, there was, as there always is, like, you know what I mean? Like, there's always people that want to have their say respectfully, and that is important. And as someone that's done an episode on Trophy Hunt, and I know how it is on Twitter um how it can go but there were some people in the field of conservation academics and kind of you know just ecologists and that had some critical ways of thinking or kind of some points they wanted to say about the project or projects like this as well so it wasn't kind of specific to yours you guys have spent a lot of time working in this and now obviously you're working with you know some top people as well what were your i'll ask you both this question feel free to answer it both of you what were your kind of reactions when people were going or hang on a minute, are you doing the right thing? We really loved it, to be quite frankly, because the criticism that you you that you get, we took on board, mm. and and we, and it just creates a more watertight establishment. Oh, that's a good. Way so, in terms of the biosecurity, you know, we've now gone from having an okay biosecurity protocol to one of the best that there is. So, in terms yeah. of like <laughs> criticism, it really kind of helps. Yes, there are some just you know criticism, like for instance you know, this project shouldn't exist full stop. Well, we can't just say, right, let's just let's just give up and pack in because, you know, one person <laughs> on Twitter says so. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think criticism was great. We really loved it. I just think that sometimes it just, it just became a mess whereby people took yeah. some things from the article and looked at it completely differently to how it was supposed to be looked at. And to be honest, the article was great, but there were quite some fundamental uh, issues. So what, for instance, one, it says... Uh, we wish to reintroduce escalapian snakes and we've got no plan of doing so because you know they're not native <laughs> in this interglacial as it were so there yeah. were some fundamental problems which we had to go around and say you know no that's not the case whatever but i think overall it was i did i did a bit of a calculation 99% of the response was positive which was you know lovely and the amount of yeah, great people you know we have people even say you know you've you've cured my depression you know it's restored my faith oh my God, in humanity amazing. and that was absolutely you know yeah. that was just oh lovely to hear kind of yeah. makes us a bit scared as well because we've got a lot to live up to but <laughs> but you know yeah, it's no motivation pressure. and it, it's great to have you know great to have support from people um i think that you know our approach is very new in britain but on a global sense this is happening all over the place. So, for instance, in Australia, mm. they only keep native species and they've got a great network of private individuals who keep native species of Australian reptile and amphibian. 
and they help conserve mm. them. Likewise, New Zealand. Reintroductions in New Zealand are practically like the corbs of conservation. They happen all the time. <laughs> yeah. Assisted colonisation yeah. all the time in New Zealand. Moving animals to islands to preserve them all the time. Yeah. You know, and I think that it's a real commentary on kind of how sort of how much we're lagging behind in Britain in terms of what methods we use in mm, conservation. That's a good point. And, and, and you know, rewilding has is, is, is happened in America, for instance, for ages. The w- wolves were reintroduced in 1996. You know, it, it's, it's mm. kind of like, you know, we've really become sort of pushed to the wayside in, in terms of conservation. There is one expression, you know, we were the first, you know, Britain was the first, now we're the worst. And I think that that's kind of, you know, true. I don't <laughs> so want to generalise. There are some incredible people in conservation and there's been some incredible success stories. But I think that, uh, you know, we've got to really modernise. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's be frank. This is, in a way, an industry. It is a sector of work. And I think that we've got some real innovation that needs to be done to get us up to speed mm. to where we need to be, where we need to be combating the ecological crisis. I think that a lot of it is very insular, as I said earlier, which is fine. You know, there's no problem with that. But one of the, the flaws of that is that we get too caught up in the details when the reality is the biosphere is collapsing around us. And I don't think we kind of recognise that. But uh, or, but I say this, it's this very small minority. But yeah, you know, overall, the, the Guardian article was incredible and the amount of support we got, we loved. And thanks to everyone who was who was nice and who gave respectful criticism. We loved it. There was, on that point you just said, I will say there was something I was thinking about when that came out. When I Because I read your article, I was like, this is amazing. And then instantly you start to see things come up and you're like, one minute, well, I thought this was amazing a minute ago. Why do you think? And is, you're kind of reading everything. And I was like, I think the next day, I, t- I think I even tweeted something going, do you know what? I think it's okay to like this project and also ask questions. I think that, that I think both those things are absolutely fine to do. <laughs> I think that one of the things that we did is, is I went, right, okay, you've got to think from a perspective of, let's assume that I don't know these two 17-year-olds. I'm playing devil's advocate here. If you can interpret it in a weird way. Like the article especially allowed for, for wriggle room in terms of how you interpreted what we're doing. Like, in a way, you know, you could read it and go, these are guerrilla rewilders. These are just, you know, maniacs who want to chuck non-native species all over the country. When in reality, but at the same time, you could kind of interpret it and go, wow, this is inspirational. So I think that that was a problem. And the reality is we aren't guerrillas. We are not cowboys. You know, we are spending a lot of money to make you know, the one of the best private sector breeding centres, you know, there is. We use scientific rigour. We've got an incredible advisory board who, you know, shout out to them. Thank you so much for all the advice. You know, this is not a sort of like caviar, you know, let's just go around yeah. and chuck, you know, Iberian waterfalls <laughs> into all the waterways in Britain. But at the same time, we do have a boldness and enthusiasm that conservation is, is, is very much needs that we want to always, mm. you know, hold on to, which is the idea that we can have more, we can have wilder spaces, we can have bigger spaces, you know, we can have more species, we can have extinct species back. But yeah, at the same time, maintaining a sort of scientific rigour and, and, and also a, an open-mindedness that I think very much needed in this world. There was another thing I I, I like this when I see it in conservation because it always makes me laugh because I think you've got and it's not always it's not all the time just a few few things that pop up but you'll get uh, someone in conservation be like we've got to act now we've got to act fast you know biodiversity is crashing climate is getting higher we need to solve this problem as quick as we can and then you get a project go sweet I've got you we're going to rewild this land here and everyone's like well not so fast slow down 
It's like, one minute, I thought we just had to act really fast. <laughs> it's like, it's just both ends of the spectrum. Like, I don't know what to do anymore. <laughs> I think that I think there's a fundamental problem in how conservation operates in the sense that we've got, on one hand, restoration, which aims to add back, right? But then on the other hand, we've got a regulatory conserve, conserve what we have and, do, and don't add anything to it and don't take any anything away. So mm. the, two, the two ends of the spectrum almost sort of, clash with each other because one's saying let's preserve no you can't do that it's too much of a risk the other one's yeah. saying it, let's just do it so it's kind of <laughs> like you know it, it, and there's that fundamental clash and what we need is and this is what pete may have spoke to you about is we need a 21st century conservationist who has the ecological mindedness of the ability to be subjective but at the same time we have yeah. the captivity rewilder enthusiasm those two put together would be incredible. And that's what we need. You know, the academic meets industrialist. That's what mm. we need. Yeah, that's so true. That is absolutely true. We need to, it is that time of coming together. Tom, what about you? Well, how did you, like, obviously you've, you, you both have been working on it. How did you feel when the criticism or the kind of points came up? How did you feel about all that? Well, I think, I mean, I think Harvey would agree. I'm probably the more thick skinned out yeah, of yeah. us two. So I, I didn't take it. <laughs> too badly i mean i didn't mind yeah. to be honest when when i saw you know the twitter feed or whatever going absolutely mental i was like get in this is amazing <laughs> even though it was like some of it was negative i was like this is brilliant because a lot of this sort of area of uh, conservation and rewilding with european herbs has never been discussed before on such a level and mm -hmm. i think that's that's probably one of our proudest achievements so far is just getting people talking about these species even yeah. if it is people who aren't in favour of what we're doing, because like I mentioned earlier, they are forgotten species. A lot of these these animals are being sort of lost in, in the, the pile of things. And when we see Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or wherever it may be going absolutely mental with comments about green lizards and common lizards, people who probably never even heard or seen one before having an opinion on it, I think that's really, really good and really sort of... Uh, <laughs> encouraging yeah. and from a, a standpoint as of a business because obviously more people getting interested in these species it helps us as a business but also as conservationists with that sort of passion behind rewilding seeing people talk about it and probably a lot of them would have gone out and done a little bit more research about these species and if we encourage that that's brilliant i think i think we should be be uh, happy with that a lot of the criticism like harvey said it was people sort of feel like they've been put up up against the wall sort of been threatened that their way of yeah. thinking for so long has been wrong i mean we're not saying it's wrong but we're saying it's time to maybe step it up a gear or take it to the next level and and adapting to what the great work that's already been done and just adding a little bit more to it to, to see where it goes you know if it doesn't work it's not the end of the world you know it's not like we the world's going to collapse even more if this project doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It's already in a pretty dire state, so yeah. we can't make it much worse by adding some <laughs> native species back to the wild. So I, I always I always look at it like that. What's the worst that can happen? People can get in your way, but we're going to keep pushing forward and hopefully one day you'll see some common lizards in your garden and some sand lizards in your garden and uh, who knows, maybe even a, a turtle. That would be absolutely amazing. I like the way you've got the Dr. Pepper approach as well. That is very, very needed. <laughs> um, 
in kind of a couple of sentences then if you could really simplify it down what what do you hope to achieve from this project all lost species back in bigger better more joined up landscapes holistic conservation the idea that you take into account everything and i just think overall just a wilder a wilder society in general you know broadening out a wide a wilder society in general where there is more nature and you know i think that fundamentally if we bring if we have more nature you know we we become more human because the reality is we evolved in nature you take away that connection then you know it's very very sort of unpredictable path you're treading on what about you tom the main sort of objective going from my my head is to get people educated on rewilding and conservation because for me personally it's been an area of biology that has been sort of lost in in the younger people Definitely. it's been it's i've always i personally i've always seen conservation it's this really boring old people going out into the wilderness and just counting how many frogs there are <laughs> in a pond that is that was that my, is it that is yeah, what it is that, that's, that's what how, it is that's how people perceive it and i think mm. just to add i think that's one of the problems with conservation is that we don't have enough self-awareness about how people see us mm. you know and people do see us yeah, as nerds yeah. you know because whenever we introduce ourselves <laughs> as conservationists we always sort of get that look like you don't you don't like conservation you're, you're not a conservation <laughs> yeah yeah you're a teen at your 17 what are you doing in conservation yeah <laughs> so it's there's kind of a stigma there but it is important i think for younger younger people to get involved and that is an, an objective personally that i would like to be able to do is get more people involved with conservation and rewilding and getting them interested in animals that they would have probably never even heard of or seen before Nice one. No, 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 that's, that's cool. And my last question to you both, and again, in a couple of sentences, if you can, it's a hard one. It's the hardest one. Everyone struggles with this one. If you could pass on just one bit of advice, if everyone on the planet could hear this advice regarding the natural world, Harvey, what would you say to everyone? The people who are in power and the people who you think have got things sorted, nine out of 10 times, do not. And if there's one thing I'd say is question everything and and never, you know, just go blindly into assuming that people in power know what they're doing. Most often they do not. The second thing that I'd say is that if you want a job to be done, give it to the younger generation because they've not yet been told that they can't do the job. That's so true. If anything, they've been told the opposite. Mm. Like everyone has. Like when you're when you're growing up, you're told like you can do whatever you want. So give it to someone that thinks they can. What well, no, believes they can do whatever they want. They're gonna smash it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tom, what about you? What one bit of advice would you pass on? Quite similar to Harvey's last point in the sense that I think don't be afraid to sort of go against the crowd, go against the flow. Obviously, we've done that by sort of pushing school to one side and going down the business route and, and going down our own passion and I think a lot of a lot more people can do that they just just need that little bit of a push it is hard to balance school and a job and a business but it's not even about school like people any age if, if you've got a passion and you really think that you've got an idea there that could develop it into something more take yeah. that risk because even if the worst thing happens and nothing comes of it at least you can say that you've had a go because I know a lot, I know a lot of people. Because I I know some of my uh, grandparents' friends and, and parents' friends. They've had ideas throughout their life that they've never actually gone and committed to, 
and now that they're sitting there regretting it yeah. and now they're too old to, to, to do anything about it so try and not have regrets and try and do something that you're going to enjoy even if it even if you don't know if it's going to work try just try your best to, to make your life as easy as it is and as enjoyable I mean it's quite rich for me to say that as a 17 year old but um, <laughs> I mean I've probably already done it already gone down that route where I've <laughs> I enjoy life and you know what in five years time it might all go bust and I might be working at Morrison's or something but (laughs) (laughs) at least I've had a go eh? (laughs) exactly exactly at least you've given it your best Um, Harvey Tom it's been an absolute pleasure to get the chance to talk to you um, about this incredible project you're working on and I, I just wish you all the best with it and I know that you've both got the right mindset with it and that's so I wish you the best but I know it's going to be the best if that makes any sense so you, you know I'm, Ryan you've got to make sure you come down you know obviously when Covid's out of the way but you've got to come and visit <laughs> mate if it's one thing I love about this podcast I've got so many places to go and visit now <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I will 100% as soon as lockdown and everything's done, hopefully by June 21st, um, we'll do come and do an on-location episode because I'd love to come and see how it's all doing and, you know, get some get some shots of the place as well. Um, but thanks so much for being on the show and I wish you all the best with the remaining project. Thank, Thank you, you so thanks much. Thanks for having us on. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work from Celtic Reptile and Amphibian, you can do so on social media. Their tags are in the write-up of this show. A reminder that any views or opinions expressed in today's show belong to the person who said them and do not represent anyone that we have worked with or are affiliated with. If you enjoyed today's show or you're a fan of Into the Wild, then you can say thanks by buying me a coffee. My Kofi link is in the write-up of this show. And finally, don't forget, you can get in touch with me. You can send me an email at intothewildpod at gmail.com or on social media, Into the Wild Pod on Twitter, Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. You know the drill. No matter what it is, no matter what you want to talk about, give me a shout and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. But until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.